currently working through a sermon series called In Christ. And this is an exposition of St. Paul's epistle to the Ephesians. If you have missed any of the sermons thus far, I encourage you to visit our church's website and get caught up on those. As we plod along through this book, my goal is that at the end of this series, you will have a full understanding of the following three things. The blessings you have in Christ, your position in Christ, and what it looks like to live life in Christ. Thus far, we've given our attention to the blessings that we have in Christ. Chapter 1 was all about the indicatives of the gospel, what we have graciously received in Christ, that which God has lavished upon us. And those blessings are election and predestination, adoption, redemption, an inheritance, along with the sealing work of the Holy Spirit, and citizenship in the kingdom of God under the rule and reign of our risen Lord and Savior. The Apostle Paul's emphasis in chapter 1 is that we have not earned any of these benefits. They are all blessings that have been bestowed upon us in Christ. This morning, we are going to progress out of chapter 1 and into chapter 2. The emphasis of chapter 1, again, was the blessings that have been given to us in Christ. Chapter 2 and almost all of chapter 3 address our position or our station in Christ. And so today, as we progress into chapter 2, we are going to give our attention to Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 through 10, and I want to consider three particular points. Number one, our old position apart from Christ. Number two, our new position in Christ. And then third and finally, I want to consider Paul's summation, his summary of the gospel here in these verses. So if you have your Bible with you, go ahead and turn to Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 through 10. I'm going to read our sermon text and then pray. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, 
so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Could you bow your head with me as I pray? Father, by the power of the Holy Spirit, I pray that you would illuminate your holy word. Give us wisdom and knowledge to rightly understand our position in Christ. I pray this by the power of the Holy Spirit and in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. Okay, let us give our attention to our old position apart from Christ. Draw your attention to verses 1 through 3. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. In these verses, the Apostle Paul is explaining to the Ephesian Christians that their old position apart from Christ. And his explanation is this. His point is this. They were dead. Dead in their trespasses and sins. But notice. Notice the inclusive language of the Apostle in verse 3. This is not just the Ephesians, but he says this, among whom we all once lived, and then he goes on, like the rest of mankind, indicating that this prior position of death, this old position of death was not just limited to the Ephesians, but rather comprehensively and universally, this describes all people, including you and me. And this death that the Apostle Paul speaks of has both physical and spiritual implications. Often this dead state is referred to by theologians as total depravity, meaning all of our human faculties have been corrupted, our mind, our will, and our emotions, along with our physical bodies. All have been affected by sin. And so as death relates to our physical bodies, the Apostle Paul said the following in Romans chapter 5, verse 12, quote, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, end quote. During his two years in Ephesus, recorded for us in Acts chapter 19, Paul most certainly taught about the effects of Adam's sin in the Garden of Eden, bringing about the curse of death, particularly in the physical sense. Because of Adam's sin and rebellion, humanity experienced physical death. According to Romans chapter 5, death did not enter the created order prior to sin. In fact, Paul is explicit Death is the result of one man's trespass, is what he pens in Romans chapter 5. And thus, many have cleverly remarked, because of Adam's sin, 10 out of 10 people die. And this directly affects 
you and me. Not only were the Ephesians subject to a physical death, but you and I are too. Death has an effect on you and me in a physical sense. Likewise, because of Adam's sin, humanity has not only experienced a physical death, but also a spiritual death. Again, it's not just our physical bodies that have experienced the curse, but also our very souls, our mind, will, and emotions. We are totally depraved. Often, Protestant theologians refer to our spiritual death as moral inability. Because of sin's power, we were unable to live in accordance with God's word. As Paul describes here in verse 3, in this state of spiritual death, we followed the prince of the power of the air, Satan himself. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, carrying out the desires of the flesh because sin had power over us, leaving us morally inable, inept. We were unable to live in obedience to God because our moral will and volition were depraved. Pastor and theologian R.C. Sproul has provided a helpful explanation of our moral inability by stating the following, quote, in our fallenness, though we have a will and can discern the good, we lack the ability to choose rightly. To exercise our wills in the proper direction of absolute dependence on God and submission to his will. To put it another way, we are dead with respect to the things of God, to that which he finds pleasing. We are dead in our trespasses and sin, and we cannot help but serve the world, the flesh, and the devil. End quote. Spiritual death rendered you and I unable to love God and obey him. Furthermore, our moral inability also extended to our intellectual ability. The Ephesians, along with the rest of mankind, were not only enslaved by sin and thus rebellious, but they were also dull to the things of God. Apart from what they could ascertain from general revelation, the Ephesians were spiritually ignorant. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, Paul explains the following. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. You see, in the state of death, the Ephesians could not grasp the things of God. But more importantly, this is also true for you and me as well. In our old position, you and I could not rightly discern the word of God. We were unable to understand the gospel with our own intellectual ability. And all of this stems from this idea of moral inability. Enslaved by sin, our will and volition, captive to sin, 
and our minds dull, unable to comprehend the gospel. And not only does this idea of spiritual death represent one's inability to obey God's law and incapacity to understand, but it also signifies one's ultimate destiny under God's just wrath. More than anyone else in Scripture, Jesus spoke of and warned about the wrath of God and described it as an eternal punishment in hell. So in Matthew chapter 25 and in verses 41 and 46, Jesus says the following, quote, The Son of Man will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And the people on his left will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Also in Mark chapter 9, verses 43 and 48, Jesus there is describing the wrath of God as being hell where there is an unquenchable fire. So Paul tells the Ephesians that in their state of death and total depravity, along with their moral inability, they were deserving of God's wrath. Again, Paul's inclusive language here in chapter 2 places you and I under the wrath of God too. And so our old position, apart from Christ, was death. Physical death and spiritual death marked by total depravity and moral inability and thus worthy of God's wrath. That was our old position, apart from Christ. Now let's consider our new position in Christ. Look at verses 4 through 7. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. After describing the state of death we once shared in with the rest of mankind, the apostle describes our new position in Christ. In the resurrection, ascension, and session of Christ, Paul states in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 20, that Jesus was made alive, raised up, and seated. So just grab this for a minute. Resurrection, made alive. Ascension, raised up. Session, seated. And don't miss this. Here in chapter 2, in verses 5 through 6, Paul states that by our union with Christ, by grace through faith, we too have been made alive, raised up, and seated with him. 
Christ was made alive. Christ was raised up. Christ was seated. And you and I, by our union with him, have been made alive. We have been raised up. We have been seated with Christ. This is our new position in Christ. In our state of total depravity and moral inability, we could not save ourselves from the curse of death, the enslaving power of sin, and the very wrath of God. R.C. Sproul provides another helpful insight concerning our inability. He says this, quote, Dead bodies are incapable of doing anything but remaining in the state of death. If they are to come alive again, they must be acted upon by an outside being. Spiritually dead people cannot do anything but remain in the state of spiritual death. They require an outside being, the sovereign Lord, to restore them to spiritual life. This is what God does for his people in making them spiritually alive, end quote. God, in his mercy, has moved you and I from a state of death to a state of new life in Christ. It is in Christ that we have been made alive. And this, too, has both physical and spiritual implications for you and me. As it relates to our physical bodies, you and I may experience death. 10 out of 10 people die. However, through the promise of eternal life, you and I have been made alive in a physical sense. In a material way, one day, all those who have been united to Christ by grace through faith will be resurrected in bodily form. The Christian will be physically, materially made alive because Christ has experienced a bodily resurrection. In our union with him, we will share in that defeat over physical death. In a very real, material way, we have, or we will experience life. Likewise, By the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, we have been spiritually made alive. Not just physically sharing in this life, but spiritually made alive. Our moral inability and total depravity has been subjugated. Once we were ruled by sin, our volition was subject to the power of evil. But now, Having been made alive in Christ, we are empowered by the Spirit. You and I have power to forsake sin. We have power to resist the devil. We have power to flee from iniquity. By being made alive, we no longer follow the prince of the power of the air who is at work in the sons of disobedience. Instead, by the Spirit, we exercise obedience to God our Father. Also, we were for a time spiritually dull in our understanding. You and I could not rightly discern spiritual truth and 
biblical doctrine. We couldn't grasp the gospel. However, by being made alive in Christ, we have been enlightened by the Spirit to comprehend the things of God. The Apostle Paul will write elsewhere and say that we actually have the mind of Christ. Furthermore, by being made alive, you and I have been made righteous and justified, therefore escaping the wrath of God. Because we are united to Christ by grace through faith, hell is no longer our reality. Christ has atoned for our sin, suffering under the wrath of God for us, absorbing God's wrath in our place. And like Jesus in his resurrection, you and I have been made alive by the mercy of God in Christ, both in a physical sense and in a spiritual sense. In this new life, we have also been raised up. In Christ's ascension, he was glorified as the Son, the second person of the Holy Trinity, proven to be the Christ, the Messiah, our Lord and Savior. As God has lifted us up in Christ, our identity has been confirmed too. You and I have been raised up as people of the new covenant, God's people. And as God has raised us up, our status and position has changed. It has changed from rebels and enemies to the dearly loved children of God, sons and daughters who were predestined for adoption before the foundation of the world. And we have not only been made alive in Christ, not only raised up, but we have also been seated with Christ. In his session, at the right hand of the Father, Christ was given all dominion and authority over all things in this age and in the one to come. And through our union with Christ, you and I have been seated with him and given authority. And don't miss this. Our reign with Christ is not entirely a future event. But Paul describes it as a present reality. You see, these three aspects of our new position, being made alive, raised up, and seated, all three of those, Paul, when he wrote them down in the original Greek language, he wrote them as being aorist, active, indicative, meaning this, a past event particularly the death and resurrection of Jesus, produced a permanent outcome that has both present and future implications. To help us grasp this concept of having both the present and future implications, Bible teachers often refer to the already but not yet of the gospel. So, for example, in our union with Christ, we do experience salvation, presently speaking. We aren't slaves to sin. We do experience peace and joy 
we do experience salvation presently speaking. And yet there is a future reality that we hope for. In fact, the Apostle Paul calls this the future hope of glory. And so in the same way, we are currently seated with Christ. And seated in such a way that we have been given dominion and authority, presently speaking. But there is a not yet future aspect in which we will reign with Christ when all of his enemies have been made his footstool, as the author of Hebrews says. So then, this begs the question, how then do we currently reign with Christ? What are the present implications? Well, through our union with Christ, you and I have dominion over sin, Satan, and death. We are no longer subject to the power of these things. They don't exercise authority over us anymore. Instead, they have been put under our feet even now. So in Romans chapter 5, the Apostle Paul says this, quote, For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. End quote. By being seated with Christ in the heavenly places, we have been given power and authority to reign over sin, Satan, and death in this life. This is the already present aspect of being seated with Christ. Dear Saint, you once were dead in your trespasses and sins, totally depraved, suffering from moral inability, dull to the things of God, rebellious and following Satan, and thus deserving of God's wrath. But, God, in his mercy, has made you alive. He has raised you up, and he has seated you in the heavenly places. This is your new position in Christ. We've seen our old position, our new position. In closing, let's look at Paul's summary of the gospel. Draw your attention to verses 8 through 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. St. Paul's explanation of the gospel can be summed up in six words. By grace, you have been saved. He pens this exact phrase twice in chapter 2. First in verse 5, and then again here in verse 8. And thus he is emphasizing the heart of the gospel, which is grace. As I've noted before, in chapters 1 through 3, the Apostle Paul outlines the indicatives of the gospel. 
that which God has accomplished for us on our behalf. He takes up three whole chapters of writing, 1,349 words translated into the ESV to be exact. And he does so in order to emphasize what Christ has accomplished for us. He's driving home the point that good works are important. They are necessary for the Christian life, but they are not what saves us. They're not what justifies us or earns our favor with God. In fact, Paul says here in verse 10 that even our good works, the ones that we do accomplish, are predestined by God for us to walk in. What Paul communicates in these first two chapters is that apart from Christ, you and I were wretched individuals. However, according to God's own free will, he chose to be gracious and merciful to you and me through the person and work of his son, Jesus Christ, the second person of the Holy Trinity. In Christ, and only in Christ, have we received the many blessings of election, predestination, Adoption, redemption, and inheritance, along with the sealing work of the Holy Spirit and our citizenship under the rule and reign of Jesus Christ. And along with these benefits, we have been stationed in a new position, moved from death and total depravity, moral inability, and the wrath of God. We have been moved from all of that to being made alive, raised up, and seated, but only in Christ. All of those things have been lavished upon us, poured out on us as a means of grace. It's not the number of children we have, nor our parenting skills, that has earned us this new position. It's not our mastery of Shakespeare, Dickens, and Austin, nor any academic accomplishment that has earned us this new position position. It's not our financial stewardship nor the amount of our tithe that has earned us this new position. It's not our Bible knowledge nor our reformed theological pedigree that has earned us this new position. It's not our political conservatism nor our political activism that has earned us this new position. No. Our new position is in Christ. And all of the wonderful blessings associated with it are the direct result of God's unmerited favor. And if you can grasp this idea of grace, this reality, if fully grasped, has two life-changing implications. So number one, Because our position in Christ is all of grace, the Apostle Paul says here that you and I have no reason to boast. In other words, no one here at All Saints Church has any reason to think of themselves more highly or more significant than anyone else in the room. In fact, more importantly, no one here at All Saints Church has a reason to act like they are more significant than someone else in the room. That's the first life-changing implication. 
If you truly understand your former position apart from Christ, where you were wretched, dead, unable, needing the grace of God, and God in his kindness came down to you, if you can grasp that, if you truly understand that, then you can be genuinely humble, not self-seeking or self-serving, not self-promoting, but resting in the grace of God. Second, if you can fully grasp the grace of God, the second life-changing implication is this. If you are lowbrow, blue-collar, perhaps with no formal education past the eighth grade, you have nothing to be ashamed of in Christ. Because when God made you alive, raised you up, and seated you with Christ, he didn't give you half of those blessings or less. Instead, God in his mercy, in his grace, fully lavished, is the words of the apostle, his grace upon you, making you fully alive, raising you completely up, and seating you with Christ. It had nothing to do with your station in life. And so that is the second life-changing implication. If you can truly grasp and understand God's grace, then you don't need to be ashamed or timid or even self-seeking, trying to promote yourself in such a way where you will be accepted as something that you're not. Rather, you can be bold and confident in God's grace, knowing that he has not shortchanged you one bit. Dear saints, this morning my prayer is that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you will fully understand and truly experience the reality of your new position in Christ. All that Christ has accomplished for you. Being made alive, raising you up, and seating you with him in power. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.